we are going to turn to Scripture. You will need a Bible today, because so if you haven't got one, please grab one. There are no slides today. It's a low-tech Sunday. Strip, that, strip back band, no PowerPoint. We're going analog. Um, so we're, we're in John 19 today, which is a huge portion of Scripture. That's the story of the death, crucifixion and death of Jesus. And I've asked Grace to read it. So we're going to read the whole chapter. This is going to take some time. It's quite a long chapter. So get a Bible, settle yourselves, and let's prepare ourselves to hear the Word of God. Okay, well, if, you're, if you're in the Blue Bibles, we're on page 1087, John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. 
The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture will be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Grace. Well, it is the week before Advent, and uh, this morning we're in an Easter story. This is a text that we would normally read on Good Friday, uh, but we're finally at the point in our series working through John, we're at the point which John has been driving to throughout the whole gospel. This is, the, this is where it's all been headed, the death and crucifixion, crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. 
right back in chapter 11, which I preached on, on September 3rd. Um, we were in John 11, the story of Lazarus, and it says there that the high priest prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And for the last three months, as we've been working through the chapters since then, we've been seeing this is what it's all driving towards. It's all driving towards the taking of the life of Jesus. Now, this chapter might feel a little jarring at this time of year. There's not much tinsel in this story, is there? And, of course, it's meant to be a jarring story. As we read this, it's meant, it's meant to make us uncomfortable. Now, one of the things about the Gospels, the accounts of the, of the death of Jesus, is that we, we don't get 4K HD torture scenes described in the Scriptures. But even the scant details that we are given still are horrific. So there is the clear emotional abuse of Jesus as he's mocked and scorned. There's then the physical abuse, which goes through a, obviously an ascending scale from being slapped in the face to having a thorn of crowns put on his head to being flogged to being crucified. The physical details are scant but horrific. And we've all got imaginations and we've all seen the movies and we've heard depi depictions. We, we, we have a picture in our minds of what all of this means. It's jarring, and we should be jarred by it, because it's a horrific story. And it's made all the more jarring if we believe that Jesus is who Jesus claims to be. And it's all the more jarring because Jesus was innocent, so the story offends our sense of justice. It's meant to. It's meant to offend our sense of justice. So this is an uncomfortable story on every level. And as Grace was reading it, probably I expect most of us felt that sense of uncomfortable discomfort. It's the kind of story that, as it's being read, makes us want to shift in our seats a little bit. And it's the kind of story, actually, which we want to move on from fast. Let's get to Easter Sunday. Let's get to Resurrection Day. And uh, when we come to Easter, it's always like that. When we come to Good Friday, and we have our Good Friday service, which actually is usually a really beautiful and powerful time. But there is a, always that sense of, let's get to Sunday. <laughs> Let's get to the good news. Let's get past the horrors of the cross. Let's get to the miracle of the empty grave and all that that means. But we can't get to the empty grave without going through the cross. We have to go through the cross to get to the empty grave. So today, it's good to linger in this uncomfortable story, in this jarring story for a while. And actually, this is a really good place. It's a helpful place for us to linger as we enter Advent. It is December this week. Christmas is just round the corner with all its tinsel and everything else. And so as we enter this season, I think it's actually really helpful for us to linger a while in the story of the death of Jesus Christ. Because doing that really focuses our minds on why it was that the baby entered the world. And so the thing I want to draw out of this passage, and obviously there's so much we could draw out of this passage, is I really want to focus on the submission of Christ, the submission of Christ and what that means for us, the way that Christ took up his cross and some of the implication of that for us. Of course, the Christmas image, the primary image of Christmas is of a baby in a manger and uh, we know about babies, got some in this room. We know the powerless, powerlessness of babies. Babies can't 
get up on their own. They can't feed themselves. They can't care for themselves. They can't clean themselves. They can scream and cry. And if yours does, we do have a very nice baby's room just through there, which we'd all appreciate you taking them out to. Uh, babies can scream and cry, but they're essentially powerless. They're entirely at the mercy of those who are around them. And, of course, what we hope for for babies is that they will receive proper care. We hope that when a baby comes into the world, there'll be people around who do look after, pick up, comfort, soothe, feed, clean, care for that baby. And there's a sense in which a baby has to be submitted to the strength that serves it. And think about those three S's, submitted, strength, serve. The baby has to be submitted. It has no choice because it's powerless. has to be submitted to greater strength, to someone who is able to pick it up, care for it, soothe it, feed it, clean it. But that greater strength to which the baby is submitted is a strength which is meant to serve the baby. It cares for the baby. That's the image of the baby. And the wonder of the manger, that Christmas image, is that the king of glory submits like that that Jesus becomes the helpless babe in the manger. And that, of course, is an incredibly powerful image, an image which has inspired countless sermons and countless songs and artists throughout the centuries. It's a, it's a mind-blowing and a beautiful and really an unthreatening image. It's an image which is easy to wrap tinsel around. And then we read John 19, and John 19 cuts right through that. Because in this story, what we have is not the beautiful image of a baby in a manger. What we have is the image of a man being tortured and killed. And, and we get to verse 16 in this chapter, which is really, for me, where I'm focusing today. And it says that the soldiers took charge of Jesus. The soldiers took charge of Jesus. Or uh, we're reading in the NIV, in the ESV, it says more simply and actually more literally, so they took Jesus. They took Jesus. There's this image of Jesus being completely submitted. Jesus is no longer a baby. Jesus is now a young man. He's early 30s. He's in the prime of his life. But like a baby, he has others take charge of him in this moment. And in my experience, young men don't like others taking charge of them. When you're in the prime of life, you don't want to be taken charge of by somebody else. When I, when I was growing up, I always had this it was a strange thing, you know, you know me, strange fellow that I am. I always had this thing when I was growing up that I was looking forward to being 28. I always thought 28 would be the ideal age to be. Because I thought at 28, you'd still have the physical vigor and strength and springiness of youth, still at your physical prime. But at 28, you're probably just about old enough to be taken seriously by people. I mean, those of you who are under 28, it's not that we don't take you seriously, <laughs> but we'll take you more seriously once you get past 28. <laughs> and, and I got to 28, it happens, and I still had the physical strength of youth. Just have, when you're 28, you don't have to do much, you, just, you can run and you can lift stuff just because that's, you're 28. But I was also starting to feel a bit more adult. I was married, we'd had a, our first child, had a mortgage, had a pension, all looking very grown up. And the thing is, being 28 didn't last very long. It's 25 years ago. Where did it go? 
But I, I knew as a 28-year-old, I didn't want people taking charge of me. This was the time when I was going to start expressing myself. But here's Jesus, 30-ish. And the soldiers take charge of him. And of course, the thing about this is it, it looks humiliating. Young men don't want to be taken charge of by somebody else because to do that is to be in some way humbled, humiliated. And what happens to Jesus here looks humiliating, and that's because, of course, it is humiliating. The, the whole process, the whole deal with crucifixion was to humiliate. It was to degrade. It was to shame. That was the purpose of what was happening. The whole thing was about a removal of personal agency. A young man at the prime of life, but you have no personal agency. You're going to be taken charge of by these soldiers. And things are going to happen to you, which you would never want to happen to you. And so we need to hold these two images together. That as a baby... Jesus had no choice but to submit to the strength of others. He had to as a baby. You have to submit to the strength of those who are caring for you. Now, as a young man, he could have resisted. Jesus could have started an uprising at this point. Think about what happens in the chapter before the one we've just read, that when Jesus is arrested, we're told in John 18 that his follower Peter gets a sword and lops off Malchus's ear. Malchus, one of the servants who's come to arrest Jesus. That could have been the moment. Jesus could have said, okay, boys, here we go. Get your swords out. Now the uprising begins. Could have been different. Jesus could have taken, expressed his personal agency at that point. He could have started an uprising. But more than that, of course, we know that Jesus had divine authority. And in other parts of the story, we see there are moments when people want to take the life of Jesus earlier in the story, early in his ministry, and he doesn't let them. Something happens. There's moments where it, it, the scriptures talk about Jesus just slipping through the crowd, that he has this divine power that it, he can just escape. He, he has authority. And think about the story where really the whole thing hangs, where this, the death of Jesus, where that journey really begins, the resurrection of Lazarus. This is Jesus who raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus has sovereign power to raise people from the dead. So Jesus surely would have had sovereign power to have escaped at this moment as well. But he doesn't. He submits. And the soldiers take charge of him. So this story about the submission of Christ does bring questions of, of power to the foreground as we contrast submission and power and what power really is and who really has power. In this story, Pilate, the Roman governor, thinks he has power. He says to Jesus, verse 10, don't you realize that I have power either to free you or crucify you? That's Pilate's understanding of himself, where he stands, I am the one with the power. Now, of course, Pilate was reading the situation wrong. He, he imagines he's in control, but what we see in this story actually is how, how baseless Pilate's claims are, how fragile his power really is. That actually, like all politicians, Pilate is doing a balancing act. Pilate is walking on a tightrope. He thinks he's got power, but he's having to try ever so hard not to fall off the rope. He's got 
He's got power, but he's a man actually who's having to balance different competing pressures. He's got the demands of Rome, his employer, his boss, who he's answerable to. He's got the demands of the priests, the people he's trying to manage and control. And then he's also got the demands of his own conscience because he knows that Jesus is innocent and he has to wrestle with that. And so what we see in this story is a, a clash of powers. There's the religious and the cultural and the social power of the priests who want Jesus dead. There's the political and military power of Rome, represented by Pilate. And there's a seeming, seeming powerlessness of Christ. But of course, we know where the real power lies. And so when Pilate says, I have power either to free you or to crucify, Jesus says to him, you'd have no power if it wasn't given to you from above. What we see here is Jesus' confidence in the plan of his Father, the sovereignty of God, that God's plan is being worked out. It's God who's in charge here. Now, that doesn't absolve Pilate of responsibility. Pilate's still responsible for the actions he he takes. And another aspect of this story is that it's a story about the misuse of power because everybody in this story knows that Jesus shouldn't be killed. They all know that Jesus is innocent. What's going on is we have a, a power play that Pilate and the priests are wanting to get rid of a problem, trying to get rid of a threat. And this is what politicians do. They always deal in expediency. What can we do? to cover our backs and make things work as we think they should work. This is how politics works, that those in power never want to surrender power. And that tends to mean that there's an accretion of power, that where there is power, where there's authority, people want to have more and more of it. And that power can be awesome, the power of the state, the power of Rome. In this account, the power of Rome was awesome. We see that in our own context. The power of the state is awesome. We saw that three years ago when we were in lockdown. We think we're living free lives. We can do what we like. And then the government decrees, no, you cannot. You've got to stay in your homes. You can't socialize. You can't go to work. You can't, if you go and walk with a cup of coffee in the park with a friend, you could risk a £10,000 fine. What we saw in lockdown was the awesome power of the state. Incredible level of authority the state can exercise over us if it chooses so to do. An awesome power, It also a power which is fragile, a power that balances on a tightrope. And we see that tightrope in this story in all the compromises that those who think they have power have to make in order to try and get the things they're after. We see it in the priests who, in order to get what they want, say, we have no king other than Caesar. Now, that was a complete denial of what they were meant to be about. These were meant to be God's priests representing God. They were meant to be the people who were most clearly waiting for, anticipating, looking for, preparing the way for the coming of God's Messiah. They were the ones who were meant to be preparing the way for God's true king to come to his throne again. And instead of doing that, they say, we have no king but Caesar. Who's Caesar? An alien, foreign power who should not have been there. And they say we have no king but him. Complete compromise in order to try and exercise their own power. And we see Pilate's compromise. Twice in this story he says, I have no basis for a charge. 
There are laws, and there is no basis for a charge against this man. And yet Pilate compromises in what he knows is right in order to try and hold on to his power. What we see in this story is that Pilate is afraid, and the priests are desperate, and none of them really are in control. And does that sound familiar when we think about politics in our world? When was the last time that you really thought a politician was in control, really? They're all walking a tightrope. It's always a balancing act. Even when power is awesome, it's always fragile. That's how human power is. But someone is in control. It says in verse 14 that this happened when Jesus appeared before Pilate at about noon on the day of preparation of the Passover. Now that's significant. It's a little bit in the story you might just skip over, but the timing is significant because noon on the day of preparation for the Passover was the exact time when the Passover lambs would have been slaughtered in the temple. Passover lambs slaughtered, the blood, the sign of God passing over his people and bringing them out of slavery into freedom. And what we see in that is that as the powers... Pilate and the priests wrestle over Jesus' fate. There's a, there's a bigger plan being worked out. That the submission of Christ is going to mean the salvation of the world. Those Passover lambs, they were meant to be the sign of God bringing his people into deliverance. The sacrifice is made in order that freedom might come. God is working out his plan. God is working out his plan. The submission of Christ is going to mean the salvation of the world. Now, we can be overly impressed, I think, by worldly power. Yeah, we're, we tend to be cynical and mocking about those in authority, which in itself, that's not good. That's a whole another sermon. But we can also take the powers too seriously. We can take the powers too seriously. But we need to see how limited that power really is. Politicians can't fix everything. Just can't. They'll never get it all working. There's never going to be a time when the health system and the education system and the care system and everything else, every other system is working perfectly, it ain't never going to happen. I don't care who you vote for. It's not going to happen. It's impossible. Because humans are incapable of making everything work perfectly. <laughs> Things can get better or worse, but it's never going to be perfect. Never. Power is limited. And more than that, politicians can't change a human heart. They can tinker around the edges. They can improve the health system. They can improve the education system. They can improve the road system. Or they can make all those things worse. But they can't change hearts. And we see that fragility of power in this story. And as you see the encounter between Jesus and Pilate, there's a tension in this story because you, you see, Jesus could so easily have pushed Pilate off the tightrope. Pilate's wobbling. He doesn't know what to do. He's a man in power, but he's under pressure. His power is fragile. It would, just, it would have taken a little nudge. Jesus just had to give him a little nudge, and he'd have come crashing down. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus submits, and the soldiers take charge of him. Now think how challenging that is to our world's view. Think about the 
models and examples we have around us in the world the whole time. The world would say to us, what you need to be, you need to be bold and sassy and take things by the scruff of the neck. It's the image we see depicted in every Disney movie. That's not how Jesus looks at this moment. There's no self-empowerment going on here with Jesus at this point. What we see is that the, the cross is an exercise in going lower. How, how, how low can you go? Mocked, tortured, flogged, crucified. You, can't, you cannot get lower than that. The cross is an exercise in going lower. But one of the amazing things about this story is that as we read it, the, the character in the story who is, seems to be, to be the most together is Jesus. The, it's the priests and, and Pilate who would seem to hold the reins, who seem to have the power, but Jesus is the one who's the calm at the center of the storm. It's Pilate and the priests who seem to be fearful and and panicking, Jesus seems to be the calm at the center of the storm. What we see in Jesus is a rock-solid security, which comes from his relationship with his Father. The last few weeks, as we've been working through chapters 13 to 17, the high Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room and praying, we, we see the nature of we've seen the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son. We see how Jesus is Jesus. There's no no insecurity evident in Jesus Christ. And even in this moment, there's no insecurity in him. Yes, he experiences agony of body and agony of soul, but he's not the one who's panicking. It's Pilate and the priests who are panicking. So could it be that submission is a better route to serenity than self-empowerment? Could that be? Think of a contemporary example. 2007, the iPhone was introduced, so recently still, only 16 years ago. And one of the things that we're now seeing is that with teenagers, there's been a direct correlation between an increase in mental health problems and the introduction of smartphones. And the lines are absolutely constant in terms of the more teenagers have smartphones, the rates in which mental health problems have increased for teenagers. That Depression and loneliness tracks absolutely with smartphone ownership. That reduction in socializing tracks absolutely with smartphone ownership. That sleep deprivation and physical inactivity track directly with smartphone ownership. The evidence now is clear that the more time teens spend on social media, the less healthy and happy they are. It's unarguable statistical fact. Now, what is the gospel of social media? The gospel of social media is live your best life. The gospel of social media is don't be humble, put yourself out there. Curate an image of yourself which others are going to admire and want to emulate. Highest ambition for so many of our teenagers is to be an influencer. The reality, of course, of social media is that it creates unobtainable standards. That you can't be like that, you can't look like that, you can't have that, you can't be as rich as that. 
And it creates status anxiety because it looks like everybody else is living a better life than you are. Social media, you're trying to live your best life, but everybody else's life looks better than mine does. And so we do see this impact on so many of our teenagers. Perhaps Jesus, perhaps the Jesus way is a better way. Perhaps rather than trying to put ourselves out there, create an image, perhaps a way of submission is a better way to serenity. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, lived in the second half of the 18th and 19th century, uh, was a great critic of Christianity. Nietzsche's critique of Christianity is that Christianity celebrates weakness. Look at the cross, said Nietzsche. You Christians, you celebrate what is weak and pathetic. You lift up a man on a cross as your God. And Nietzsche said, the trouble with Christianity is that you celebrate weakness and then you use weakness, you use submission actually as a way of controlling people. That what Christianity does is to impose morality, tells people how to behave, all on the basis of a man dying on the cross, all on the basis of weakness, all on the basis of submission. And what people really need to do is get rid of that, get rid of a saviour on a cross. And live your best life. Live free. Express yourself. Do the thing that you want to do. Don't be constrained by the sniveling morality of Christianity. Set yourself free from that. Now that philosophy is incredibly powerful in our culture. Think about how our culture celebrates individualism and self-expression above all else. It comes direct from the teachings of Nietzsche. The question to ask is, does that actually make us any happier? The gospel of individualism and self-expression. Now, it's good to be able to express yourself. It's good to know who you are. But the flip side of that is all around us. We see it that the more we say we need to be free to express ourselves and be individuals, what we see is an increasing fracturing in community life. What we see is Increasingly, it feels like people can't hold relationships together. Increasingly, what it feels like is that people are always chasing unobtainable goals and end up more and more miserable. What we see is more and more bitter and rancorous public debate where nobody seems to be able to talk civilly to one another, but everybody forms into bitterly opposed camps. What we see is not cohesion, but division as we celebrate our individualism and our self-expression. Thank you, Friedrich. Nietzsche. Is it possible that the way of the cross produces better results? Is it possible that Nietzsche had it all the wrong way around? Is it possible that our culture has it all the wrong way around? Is it possible that the kind of submission displayed by Christ doesn't in the end restrict us but really can liberate us? What we see is that Jesus submits. He lets the soldiers take him, and then he carries his cross. So my question for us today is, are there crosses that we need to submit to? Might it be that by going lower, we actually find ourselves lifted higher? What are the things that God today might be asking you to trust him in?
Think about this story. Jesus having to think of the level of trust that Jesus had to put in his father. Jesus could have got out of this. He could have pushed Pilate off the tightrope. Could have started an insurrection. Things could have been different, but Jesus trusts the sovereign plan of God. What is God asking you to trust him in today? Or are there things that God is asking you to submit to which you really don't want to? But which, actually, that's the way going lower in order to be lifted higher. Are there difficult situations in your life? Are there burdens which you are meant to carry, just as Jesus picked up his cross? Are there burdens which you'd meant to carry, but which you'd much rather not? You'd rather get out of, you'd rather be free from, you'd rather escape from, you'd rather run away from, you'd rather break relationship, fracture something in order to escape it. Are there burdens that are yours to carry, and the Jesus way is to submit to them? To say, okay, God, I will submit to carrying that cross. I'll submit to carrying that burden. I'll pick it up again, trusting you, trusting that going lower is actually the way to go higher. Are there difficult decisions that you need to make? Maybe you need to choose to do the right thing. You need to choose to do the godly thing. Maybe you're facing some decision in your life. Maybe you're walking on a tightrope. Am I going to go the God way or am I going to go my my own way? And doing the right thing means submitting your desires. It means humbling yourself. It means saying, "I'm I'm going to face being humbled. Even if that means it feels like I'm being humiliated, I'm going to eat humble pie. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do the godly thing. I'm going to submit I'm going to trust God. I'm going to submit my own desires in order to allow God to lift me up. It might feel too costly. You might even be sitting here this morning thinking, well, yeah, I have in my life. There are burdens which I want to escape from. There are decisions I'm trying to make, and I'd much rather go the other way. It feels too costly. But you know the thing about this story? The Gospel of John doesn't finish in John 19 doesn't finish with Jesus being laid in the grave. What happens next is resurrection. What happens next is the empty tomb. What happens next is Easter Sunday. But there's no resurrection without the cross. Jesus submitted in order that he would be lifted up and would be saviour of the world. Are there things that we need to submit to? Is there a dying that we need to do? Is there a cross that we need to carry in order that in the end, Jesus would bring us through to resurrection life? There are two responses, and this should encompass everybody in the room this morning. It might be that the Spirit is nudging you right now. You can feel the Spirit nudging you, pushing on your heart about a cross that you need to pick up and carry. It's the right thing to do. It might be that you're not in that situation at the moment. If not, praise God. But all of us should come with amazed gratitude to Jesus that he submitted to his cross. Wow, what a story. What a saviour. The submission of Jesus Christ 
even to the cross, so that we might know the hope of resurrection life. Lord, we thank you for your amazing submission, your extraordinary humility, how low you stooped in order that we might know the hope of being lifted up to everlasting life with you. So I pray you'd help us. I pray as we enter this Christmas season over the next week, this Advent season, I pray that you would help us to hold these images together, the baby in the manger and the man on the cross. See how you were submitted in both those places. Humbled. And I pray that you would give us courage to carry the things we're meant to carry, to make the decisions we're meant to make, to live in a way which speaks of our hope and our confidence in you rather than being sold out to the ways of the world which will always fail us. Lord, we don't want to be like Pilate and the priests. We want to be like you, serene in the midst of the storm. Help us, Lord, I pray. Amen.